Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me on this podcast all about gunshot residue and its significance in forensic investigation. So as part of the podcast, I'll be talking about some real life uh, cases where this has been used as evidence. I'll actually talk about what gunshot residue is and then look at some methods of detection. So for me, I think that probably the most well-known case involving gunshot residue has to be the murder of Jill Dando, TV presenter on April 26th in 1999, I believe it was, and she was shot once in the head. Police searched the home of a man called Barry George just over a year later, and they recovered a coat, and inside the coat was a single particle of gunshot residue. It was found inside one of the pockets. Now, that particle had a similar composition to the residue that was found on Miss Dando's hair, raincoat, and the spent cartridge case recovered at the scene. Now that seems fairly compelling. Three separate sources, all with traces of this uh, gunshot residue. Now, during the 2001 trial, jurors were informed of potential lies that were told by Mr. George regarding his knowledge of Miss Dando, his false alibi, and of the single particle of gunshot residue, and he was subsequently found guilty of her murder. Now, we've all heard the phrase, a trial by media, and Barry George was no different. I I remember recalling a paper from the Mirror, and on it they they had this big headline that says, uh, Jill's Mad Assassin, and then it had a few bullet points and it said he was jailed for a rape attack he was arrested with a knife at Dye's palace uh, stalked over 400 other women the wife supposedly was telling of a violent marriage so you can see the, the papers were creating this image of this well they called him a mad assassin and they used a picture of him with a gas mask holding a weapon on the front page so if you take that and then combine it with the evidence that I've talked about, it, it's, it's fairly compelling. But in 2006, the Criminal Case Review Commission concluded that the GSR, the gunshot residue evidence, was inconclusive. And it was no more likely that the particle had originated from the shooting of Miss Dando than it had come from any other source. And because of that, in 2008... Barry George was acquitted of the murder and to this day still protests his innocence and is uh, extremely keen himself to find the true killer and has gone to great lengths to basically uh, clear his name. Now, gunshot residue as an evidence type actually came about by accident, totally by accident, when in 1974... Robin Keeley, who was a senior scientist at the Met Police uh, Forensic Science Lab, was conducting a study of particles collected on air filters during just a a typical survey of lead levels in the atmosphere of indoor firing ranges. And what he noticed whilst observing the lead using scanning electron microscopy and X-ray spectrometry was discrete particles composed of lead, antimony, and barium and that they appeared to only occur in primer residue i.e from a firearm only so i think at this point before we really get into uh, how we detect gsr i think we need to talk some 
ballistic basics and talk about actually what what is in a bullet and why do we get this residue coming once the gun has been fired so let's just go through a few of the basics so a bullet itself is composed of four really basic components and they're called a slug a casing gunpowder and a primer now the slug is the part of the bullet that actually leaves the barrel of the gun the casing basically just holds both the gunpowder and the primer together now when you pull the trigger of a, a gun it causes a structure of the gun called the hammer to withdraw and then it rapidly strikes the back of the bullet now the primer is inside the bullet in a sealed container and it's surrounded by gunpowder so when the shock of the hammer striking the bullet uh, is enough to cause an explosion the primer what you find is that that exploding primer bursts open its container and it ignites the surrounding gunpowder combustion of the gunpowder generates enough force to propel the slug of the bullet down the barrel and out of the gun but it clearly isn't just the bullet that leaves the gun see here's the thing when a gun is fired the reaction is very exothermic and by exothermic i mean it gives out heat basically now not all of the material is fully combusted either this material can be expelled from the gun either out of the barrel from the shell ejection chamber or virtually anywhere heat and smoke can escape so the question is where can all this residue go well it can go anywhere it can fire backwards onto the gun itself onto someone's hand and arm firing it it can uh, go onto clothing that they're wearing if they're in a room it can go onto the walls the ceiling the floor anywhere and then the crucial question to ask is well what might or what questions might rather we be able to answer after finding trace evidence of gunshot residue and that's the role of the forensic scientist the ballistic expert particularly because what we really want to know is has the gun been fired or not has the given projectile or the cartridge case been fired did the suspect shoot and i, I say that because in fake suicide cases that question might prove crucial is the given wound that you might see in somebody a firearm injury is the given hole so i'm talking about on clothes on furniture on a wall for example a gunshot hole and what was the actual firing range most primer blends contain combinations of the chemicals i mentioned earlier lead antimony and barium but other components such as aluminium tin uh, sulfur even potassium can also be used the gunpowder that's used in modern ammunition manufacture is generally either single base using uh, cellulose nitrate or what we call double base where it uses cellulose nitrate and nitroglycerin now gsr or gunshot residue composition really depends on the formulation of the primer mixtures the composition of the projectile materials and the barrel scrapings so you can see there's a bit of variation there so let's talk about collection of gsr so gun's been fired we know that there is this residue but how would we go about collecting it well there's a number of methods uh there's dry methods wet methods and also just collection generally of or techniques that we use to collect organic residue so things like swabbing tape lifting or even vacuum lifting so we'll just talk about a few of these so let's talk about the dry method to begin with 
So let's say that a uh, weapon's been fired and there's gunshot residue on the hand. For the collection of GSR on the hand, molten wax of a suitable melting point is generally sort of gently brushed over the hand. But it does require kind of sufficient thickness. We're talking maybe like one, two millimeters maybe. And when the wax is set, we peel it off. And what it does, it picks up all of the GSR from the hand. Another method, a solution of cellulose acetate can be applied to the site bearing the GSR and that's peeled off on drying and the cast that is formed will also pick up GSR. Or we can also use a cellophane sheet impregnated with acetic acid and it's pressed against the site and that can help to pick up lead. Now, the site bearing the GSR is pressed with an inner adhesive tape or with an adhesive aluminium foil repeatedly. And the tape is kept in a vial with adhesive surface inside the vial before and after the use. The tape is then mounted on a specimen stub for examination. And finally, another way of doing it is basically spraying the site that's bearing the powder marks with a collodion solution. The film is basically reinforced with nylon fibres and the reinforced film picks up the powder residue um, as it's peeled off as it starts to dry. So there are some of the dry methods, but let's get into the wet methods. So here are a couple of things that we can do to pick up the GSR. We can use filter paper. A uh, filter paper is moistened with dilute acetic acid. It's pressed against the spot that is suspected to bear uh, some gunshot residue, and that's picked up by the filter paper. We could also use a piece of cotton cloth or cotton swab that's moistened with dilute HCl or hydrochloric acid. So we're talking about only about 10%. Or with nitric acid, about a little bit lower there, about 5%. And the site bearing the GSR is swabbed with that piece of cloth or swab. And it, again, it picks it up. And the swabs from various parts of the hand really should be collected separately if this is the method that the examiners would use. Uh, some other ways, the hands could be rinsed thoroughly in dilute nitric acid. So we're only talking about 50 mils of one mole of nitric acid used there. Um, placed in a plastic bag. The solution, therefore, that's obtained is freeze-dried and then is ready for testing purposes. You can also take the residues in the barrel, collect them by washing the barrel with hot distilled water, and then the washings are tested for the constituents of the residues. So what we're starting to see here is there's a whole range of techniques that forensic examiners can employ to try and get this GSR to, to, to detect when it's fallen upon a particular surface. So I said that we can collect just generally organic residues uh, by a number of methods. So let's talk through some of these. And as I've already referred to, swabbing is one of them. So you can use here a small cotton wool ball. Uh, a clean cloth piece or a filter paper moistened with organic solvents, so things like acetone, ether, alcohol. And basically you just swab the site. The swabs are collected and then the GSR is extracted. We can, again, as I've talked about uh, just a few moments ago, tape lifting. An inert tape of suitable width, again, about three to four centimetres would do, is taken and the site is taped. The tape uh, is used as such or extracted and then the extract is utilised for testing. So the tape lifting is becoming popular for its convenience and application in most situations, including lifting GSR from cadavers. The tape picks up basically both organic and inorganic constituents of GSR. 
then there's vacuum lifting and here we're basically just using uh what seems a bit like a vacuum cleaner in a way it's a kind of suction tool it's really useful when we're collecting gsr from clothes obviously it works like different to a vacuum cleaner but essentially what it's going to do is lift those residue particles from a particular material that we suspect gsr has landed on so how could we detect it well here infrared photographs are really useful especially in cases where gsr is thought to be on colored clothing we can use X-ray microfluorescence imaging, and that can reveal lead and other metallic particles present in deposited rather GSR from primers. And SEM or scanning electron microscopy is useful, and not only in detecting GSR but providing information on the number and relative size of the particles that are found. What uh, I tend to have used in the past when I've done sort of school experiments involving this in a forensics club are the chemical methods now investigations involving trace evidence tend to use presumptive tests now the reason why we use these are because they're quick they're quite cheap they're inexpensive and they're really easy to perform in the field and they can provide an indication as to whether or not certain chemicals such as those typically used in ammunition may be present but it is important to remember that they simply indicate the presence of certain chemicals, not where they may have come from. So there's a whole range of techniques we need to employ to test for GSR, but the chemical methods allow us to do some presumptive tests to see if we, if we can pick up on any of the chemicals that typically we find in ammunition. So the presence of a lead compound on a suspect's hands does not prove, though, that the suspect fired a gun any more than the absence of lead proves that a person did not fire a gun. It really just serves to indicate if, I guess you could say, a deeper analysis is required. So let's talk a little bit about GSR chemical testing. There's two real uh, important tests that I'd like to mention. One is the diphenylamine test, and the other is sodium uh, rhodisonate test. So let's talk about the first one, the diphenylamine test. That detects the presence of nitrates, commonly found in some of the compounds used in ammunition and here a deep blue color indicates a positive result the sodium rhodisonate test detects the presence of lead and barium and as i've already mentioned earlier in the podcast they are common primer ingredients here a deep red color would indicate a positive result but like i said we can only presume that these chemicals are here, that we need to do a deeper analysis to see if they actually came from ammunition. It is rarely contested that GSR originates from a firearm. That's fairly, an, um, you could say a bit of an obvious statement there. But what's far more interesting is how the particles came to be present on, say, a suspect's clothing or skin or hair. The type of firearm and ammunition also has an impact on the amount of GSR that may be deposited onto the suspect or their surroundings. So in the UK, GSR is rare in the general environment and one would not expect it to be present on a suspect with no connection at all to firearms. But, interestingly, studies in the UK have discovered that single particles can be found on public transport. GSR on armed police officers, their vehicles and their equipment 
And even police officers not associated with firearms and occupational environments suggest that sources of contamination do exist. And with that, I'd like to close this podcast just by thinking about one other um, famous case involving gunshot residue. Just linked to what I've just said. And it's that of the Glasgow gangland murder of a man called Kevin Carroll in 2010. So here, a single particle of GSR was identified on a jacket recovered from the home address of the suspect, Ross Monaghan, more than six months after the shooting. The address had been searched by armed police officers that were likely to be contaminated with GSR. And the prosecution expert in this case stated that a lack of information about the source of the particle precluded her saying anything more about how the particle was deposited. And as a result, it was totally inadmissible as evidence, citing the possibility that it had arrived on the jacket through secondary transfer from the armed police officer's clothing. As a result, uh, when this case hit the newspapers, I remember the big uh, heading saying Monaghan's gang of free four off hook after attack case collapse. So here we have a real case where, and I can't comment on any of the specifics of the case in this podcast, but here we've got an example where gunshot residue detection formed part of the original case, but as evidence it was inadmissible because we couldn't confirm exactly what the source of that was. So I do think that's just an interesting way to kind of wrap up, particularly because in a lot of the uh, forensic podcasts that I've made, I talk about the evidential value of things like hair fibres, of blood spatter, of DNA testing. I thought this is just another kind of interesting one. Talk about gunshot residue, but then talk about how in forensics, whilst we can put some significance on it, it's not totally conclusive. So all that really remains for me to say is thank you everyone uh, for listening to this podcast all about gunshot residue and its significance in forensic investigation.